All right, good evening. Hello. How's it going? All right, tonight we'll be continuing our study in the Minor Prophets, and if you have a handout, um, if you want one and you don't have one, they're coming around, and if you don't get one, just raise your hand, but go ahead and turn your Bible to the book of Amos. That's where we'll be as we begin um, studying tonight. Let me ask you a question before we get started. Based on what we've done so far, I believe we've covered Obadiah, Jonah, Joel, and that might be it outside of an introductory lesson on the Minor Prophets. So far, would you say um, that the overall message of the prophets to the people has been positive or negative? What would you say? Overall, the prophet's message toward the people, especially, or whoever they're preaching, their audience, has it been positive or negative? So Obadiah's message to Edom, positive or negative for them? Ms. Nita says this, negative. Jonah's message to the Assyrians initially, the people of Nineveh, positive or negative? Negative. And then Joel's message to Israel, positive or negative? It says it's pretty much negative. So, yeah, most of the messages that we read in the prophets have been negative, but they all tend to end on an upswing of hope with very rare exception. All of the prophets, the minor prophets especially, but I think you can make the same case for Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. Though they're hard in their rebuke, they do end in an upswing of hope. And it just says something to us. This will mean a lot to us tonight, I think. It says something to people that preach, and that is you need to be balanced. There needs to be harsh rebuke on occasion and covering the whole counsel of God. But at the same time, everything can't be fire, hell, brimstone, condemnation. There also is a lot of joy in the Bible, a lot of God's goodness in the Bible. But it also says something to people that receive preaching and teaching, and that is we got to make sure that we expect the right things out of preaching. If we come to a message, and really that's what the prophets are, at the heart of what they do, they preach messages to God's people in their generation and how they're supposed to respond. And when we come to preaching, we need to expect the right things so that we're not disappointed, overwhelmed, or underwhelmed by what we find. You remember Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, the time's going to come when men will have what kind of ears? Itching ears. Who has itching ears, by the way? I think everybody does, in a sense. I think everybody has certain things in the Bible that they like to hear. And there are certain sermons that you could hear preached every week and it wouldn't bother you one bit. And you have certain areas and certain pockets in the Bible and in theological discussions that kind of drift us toward that way. What we've got to desire and want, though, is people that preach the whole truth and not simply scratch the itches that we have and challenge us. And so tonight we're going to run into a prophet who is not really interested in doing that, but instead is interested in challenging God's people. All right. So the book of Amos. Amos, his name means to bear burden, and it's a shortened form of another Hebrew name, Amaziah, which means the Lord has born or something along that those lines. The Lord has born. Look at Amos chapter one, and I'm going to read in verse one, and we're going to do what we've done already. We're going to cover the intro and background. We're going to look at an overall outline of the book and its major parts. Theological themes that come up in the book of Amos, New Testament quotations or allusions there, and then how we see Jesus in the book of Amos. So we're going to take the same outline we've always taken. But notice the who is the man by the name of Amos. Look at Amos chapter one and verse one. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So. Sometimes with the prophets, we don't get a lot of information on who they are and their background. But Amos is different. We do know some things about him. And what do we know based on verse one of chapter one outside of his name? 
He's a shepherd. Yeah, flip over to Amos chapter 7 and notice verse 14 and 15. He says a little bit more about his background. And by the way, this is all about what his job was before he became a preacher, before he became a prophet that God called. But Amos 7, he's talking to the high priest, Amaziah. Notice 14. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore. This word probably in Hebrew it means something like a picker of sycamore trees or sycamore figs. But he says, that's what I did. But the Lord took me, verse 15, from following the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. So Amos is unique in that we don't have the normal introduction. Amos, the son of we don't know his dad's name, but we do know he's from Tekoa. And we also know that before he was a preacher, a prophet, he was a person that worked around agriculture. He worked. He was a shepherd of sorts. And that's what he did. We also know he's from Tekoa, like I said, six miles south of Bethlehem, 10 miles from Jerusalem. And it's in an area which was suitable for raising sheep and goats. Based on his background, what Amos did before, does this give you any type of indication on what you could expect from him? Anything you might expect? Maybe you've read the book of Amos before. Maybe you haven't. But just with the background that he wasn't always a prophet, he became a prophet and he has this shepherding background. Anything you sort of anticipate in this book? Shepherding experiences. And he's going to use some of that terminology dealing with sheep and that sort of thing as God relays this vision to him. Anything else? Faithfulness. Okay, yeah. Even under great difficulty. Yeah. Left his livelihood to do what God wanted him to do. And that's his rebuke to Amaziah. Hey, I wasn't looking for a job. God called me. And that's why I'm here. But also this. And Amaziah's rebuke of him in chapter seven brings this up. He's not a professional. He's sort of rough around the edges. His approach is not like the others in that he wasn't a trained prophet. In the days of Samuel, first Samuel, you start reading the Old Testament about the schools of the prophets. That wouldn't have been true about Amos. He's called by God and he's from the southern kingdom of Bethlehem or in, in, around that area of Bethlehem. He's sent up north to Tekoa or excuse me, to Israel to preach to them. OK, when did he do his preaching? 766 to 755 B.C. How do we know that? It's because we see the two kings that were reigning when he did his preaching, Uzziah and Jeroboam. Now, why does that matter? It matters for this reason. At this time in Israel's history, they enjoyed a great amount of prosperity. The wealth that they had in the days when Amos was preaching, the only other time in Israel's history when they were this wealthy or more wealthy was in the days of King Solomon. So Amos is going to do a lot of preaching about the upper echelon in society, the financially wealthy and well-off individuals and how that's corrupted them and their response to God and what they should be doing that they're not doing because material possessions have blinded their eyes. That's a big part of his message that they have allowed their prosperity, their wealth to just pretty much undo them. And if you want to know more about what was going on during this time period, just read Second Kings chapter 14 and chapter 15 to get some of that now. We'll see this as we go through Amos, but just keep in mind, as you already know, there's nothing inherently sinful about material prosperity, right? True? True or false? True. Nothing wrong with it. And yet, and yet, there's nothing sinful about that. And we need to always make that point. And I think we do always make that point. And yet, the Bible over and over again warns about it. It does. And I want to know, if I'm reading the Bible, why is this the case? Yes, Abraham was rich, Genesis 13, 2. And David was king and obviously enjoyed great material possessions. And yet the Bible consistently warns first Timothy six, 10 through 17. Just beware about your relationship to material possessions. Money is neutral, but we're never neutral with money. 
Money either makes you a better or bitter person. You just can't be neutral. We say, well, money's not inherently evil, but we can be with it in our possession. And we're going to see how they responded to it in the book of Amos. It's a challenge. And I guess my question would be, while wealth is not inherently sinful, what tends to cause us to allow it to lead us into spiritual unfaithfulness? And I say us broadly, the human race, from the days of Adam and Eve up to the present hour. Money is a neutral commodity, and yet it often, or a lot of times, leads people into spiritual unfaithfulness. Why do you think that's the case? Okay, once you have some, you want it all. Somebody once asked Rockefeller how much money is enough. He said a little bit more. And sometimes that's our mindset. Okay, yeah, it gives people a false confidence. Okay, I've got it covered. I don't need God. You've got other things going on. You've got so much opportunity. You can do whatever you want. And so all of those reasons and more give us just a little bit of pause. And we're going to see this throughout the book. Now, remember what I told you about preachers. It's not Amos's job to make anybody comfortable. In fact, it's a very uncomfortable book to read because he challenges people. This is the book that people read. and They're like, well, I guess I'm pretty poor or at least I want to be because Amos isn't talking to me. But Amos challenges everybody and how we respond to our possessions. And we'll see some of that as we go on. Okay. Who's his audience? Primarily, he writes to Israel. Look at chapter one and verse one. At the end, it says he did his work in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. In the days of Jeroboam, this would be Jeroboam the second. There are two Jeroboams in first and second Kings. You might want to write Jeroboam the second above that. So you remember second Kings 14. But this was when Jeroboam was the king of Israel two years before the earthquake. And so. He did his preaching to Israel. He saw this vision concerning Israel. That's in chapter one and verse one. But the challenge with Amos is Amos talks to a lot of different people. His message primarily is to the northern kingdom of Israel. But right out of the gate, he speaks to six foreign nations. He mentions Judah, the southern kingdom, and then he mentions Israel. But that's who he's talking to. Here's an outline of the book. Oh, I'm sorry about the way that came out. But. All right. I'll just give it to you. First, you have the introduction and summary message. That's Amos chapter one, verse one and two. And then there's the judgment or the oracles of the nations. That's Amos chapter one and verse three through chapter six and verse 14. Amos will have five visions in chapter seven, verse one through chapter nine and verse 10. And then at the end, there'll be a word of hope and salvation. Amos nine, 11 through 15. So that's a rough sketch of the outline of the book and how we're going to cover it in the section. So introduction, verse one, and really a summary of Amos's work in verse two. Judgment messages to the nations. That's the bulk of the book. Five visions, chapter seven, verse one through chapter nine, verse 10. And then a word of hope and salvation. And then the last thing before we get into the overview of the sections is, why did Amos write this book? Amos wrote this book to prepare people for what he calls the day of the Lord. Now, remind me, we've talked about this in Joel. I know it's been a few weeks, but in the prophets, in the Old Testament, what does the day of the Lord mean? And by the way, it doesn't mean the end of the world. But when the prophets are talking about the day of the Lord, what are they normally referring to? Um, no, but there is going to be a phrase that we're going to see that refers to the Messiah coming. And it's going to be at the end of the book of Amos. But when they when the prophets say the day of the Lord's coming on you, what are they typically talking about? A day about what? Judgment. Judgment or punishment on the people of that time based on the way that they've lived. So Amos's primary focus is get ready because judgment's coming. This book has been quoted in famous speeches. We'll show you one of those later on. We sing a song based on a verse in the book of Amos, but I don't think we always appreciate where it's situated and what Amos is dealing with. And hopefully tonight's class will help us with that. All right. Let's begin with the introductory and summary. Amos chapter one, verses one and two. The words of Amos. 
who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion, and he utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. All right, introductory statement. First off, Amos says these are the words of Amos, and if you see in your version, it says at verse 1, which he saw. That means Amos received a vision of some sort. He didn't say the words which he received or he heard. Amos says he saw something. That goes to the visions that he's going to start seeing in chapter 7, verse 1, through the end of chapter 9. But these are the words of Amos, and he's called by God to be a prophet. He wasn't always a prophet, but now he is. He tells you where he's from. He's from Tekoa. He's a southern preacher going up to a northern town, which would have been a struggle for him. Amos's job, remind me, what was his job before he preached again? A shepherd. And now he's going to go up and he's going to do some preaching in the northern kingdom of Israel. But also he's going to be dealing with wealthy people, people that are in a different tax bracket than he is. And he's showing up to tell them, hey, you're not living the way that God wants you to. Not only are you not living the way that God wants you to. But um, judgment's coming immediately if you don't repent. And so Amos had his work cut out for him. And you know what they're thinking as they see him. Well, where have you been to school and who trained you and who sent you here? You're not even from here. You're from out of town. Go where? Go home. Leave town. We don't want to hear your message. And that's some of what Amos has to deal with. He says that this happened two years before the earthquake. And if you notice that at the end of verse one, there is an earthquake. We don't know when this happened, but we know that it did. Turn your Bible to Zechariah. Zechariah, I believe I want chapter four. Amos says something about an earthquake. And we know that this was still talked about some 400 years after the events took place. Fourteen. Yeah, that's what I want. Fourteen five, is it? Fourteen five. Zechariah 14. This is 400 years after, and yet they're still talking about this earthquake. Zechariah 14, 5, you will flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. And you will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And so Amos preached in the time when he said this was two years before an earthquake. Eventually, an earthquake did take place because Zechariah tells us about it 400 years after. Why does that matter for Amos's message? It matters for this reason. What he talked about and he says a lot in his book about an earthquake or God shattering the earth. Amos chapter six and verse 11, Amos nine, five and six about the power God possessed. Two years later, when this earthquake happens, if you remembered hearing Amos preach, your mind would be thinking he really was a prophet from God. Everything that he said was going to happen, happened to us. And by the way, everything that hasn't yet happened that he said was coming probably is because this earthquake happened just like he said. And so you could trust in that. And then the last thing is in chapter one and verse two, he says that the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherd mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So this idea of the Lord doing this roar signifies God's judgment coming. In chapter 3 of Amos and verse 4, he's going to mention it again. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? And notice chapter 3 and verse 8. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So the thrust of his message is God is going to roar against his people. 
through an army, eventually in 722 B.C., some 30 to 40 years after this message, Israel's going into slavery and captivity because they've rebelled and disobeyed. Amos 1 and verse 2 is a summary of the book. God has roared against you because of your sin, and this is the punishment that's happened. But if you were an Israelite in 760 B.C., your question would naturally be, what have we done? We're rich. We're wealthy. By the way, who would you think had blessed you if you were God's chosen people, more prosperous than you were in the days of Solomon? What would you be thinking about your material wealth? It came from who? God. We're well off. We're blessed. by. We're worshiping just like we should. More about that in chapter five. Why is God roaring against us? What have we done wrong? Okay. Now, let's get to the heart of the the message. This next section starts out strange. Who did Amos say that he was going to preach to in Amos chapter one and verse one? Who did he say his primary audience was? Somebody said it. Israel. And yet look at Amos chapter one and verse three. The first thing he does is he says for three transgressions of Damascus, which is in Amram or in Syria, and for four. And then he just starts talking about these other nations. In fact, he mentions six other nations first. And I've got the references for you on the screen. But just notice these. Amos one and verse three for three transgressions of Damascus. And then Amos one and verse six for three transgressions of Gaza and for four. Amos one and verse nine. He mentions Tyre. He mentions Edom in verse 11. He mentions the Ammonites in verse 13. So these oracles to the nations, he says his message is primarily to Israel. But the first thing he does is starts rebuking other countries, other countries that don't have a covenant relationship with God. They're not under Israel's banner of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. And Amos starts preaching to them first. Now, this business about three transgressions are for four. When you actually read them, let's just do a few so I can show you what we mean. He won't point out three or four sins. He's only going to point out one. It's just a figure of speech to say for all that stuff you did, plus one more. But in every case, in the whole section, chapter one, verse three to chapter six and verse 14 is about things that nations and countries had done wrong. But Amos isn't going to point out a bunch for every nation. He's going to point out one thing. Look at Amos one and verse three. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn. And the top of Carmel withers. Verse three, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. That's their sin. Now look at verse four. So I'm going to send fire on them. And verse six, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. That's their sin. So what's God going to do? Verse seven, send fire on them. For every one of these, he just mentions one sin that the people had done. Every one of these areas of condemnation coming right to you, Gary, every one of them. If you look at chapter one and verse four, that's the sin of Damascus. They were mistreating people. Chapter one and verse seven, chapter one and verse 10, chapter one and verse 14. All of the nations are punished for what they were doing to other people. They were either oppressing people, dragging people into slavery, committing fornication, robbing people of everything they had. What does that tell you about our relationship to other people and what God thinks about it? It's pretty high up on the list. Gary? No, he's not. He's not. He's just proclaiming a a judgment against them, which brings me to a question for us. In the Old Testament, who were God's covenant people? Israel. So what was God's relationship to the Gentile nations in the Old Testament? Or what have we typically said about God's relationship to Gentiles under the old covenant? Used them as tools, Dwight. 
didn't have anything to do with them. Who would go with didn't have anything to do with them for 500? Nobody? Okay. Yeah, didn't have anything to do with them, but that's typically what we've heard and said, that they were not under the covenant arrangement. God tells them in Deuteronomy 5, 1 and 2, I've made a covenant with you and your fathers, all of you that are alive here this day. Not for everybody. Only them. Andy. That's right. And this is how we know that's true. Why would God be rebuking Gentile nations for sins if they weren't under any kind of relationship toward him at all? The reality is Israel in the old covenant was under a special relationship with God. He gave them a special law, put them in a special place, the land of Palestine and Israel to preserve Abraham's seed and bring about the Messiah. But every nation has always been under submission to God. It's not true in the Old Testament that, well, Gentiles were over there and Jesus didn't start caring about them until he died on the cross. Because why did Jonah go preach to Nineveh? They're not Israelites. Every nation, God has always cared about them, but not just cared about them. If they violated his covenant and didn't do what he asked them to do, there would be punishment. And so Amos starts out preaching right away by saying, you people are in sin because you haven't done what God wanted you to do. Now, if you're Israel and these nations that tormented you in the past and you hear God's coming in judgment on them, what would be your response? You'd be pretty happy. And I know this is kind of hard to see, but I'm going to point this out. So he starts here in Damascus and then he goes down here. He talks about nations up here. And if you're an Israelite and you're reading this and he eventually even talks about Judah, your southern sister, spiritual sister. He goes to Edom. I mean, he circles all of these. But what the Israelites don't know is that God is really just circling the wagons and making the target bullseye. And the last group he talks about is Israel. This is what sometimes is called the amen factor in preaching. Like you're preaching about something, you're preaching against sin that people don't commit and preach it. Preacher, amen. That's right. Until. We get down your street for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Get a Amos for three transgressions of Philistines or Tyre and for four. Preach Amos. But notice Amos chapter two and verse six for three transgressions of Israel and for four. Now, all of the other nations, they had about, I don't know, three verses dedicated to them. He starts in Amos chapter two and verse six with Israel and it goes until chapter six and verse 14. The bulk of the prophecy is about Israel's failings. God's not going to let any nation off the hook, but he is especially, you could even say, hard on Israel. And why do you think that's the case? Why spend all of this time on Israel in contrast to the other nations? Why do that? What was that? Yeah, that's right. Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is what? Expected or required. That's what Jesus says. Psalm 147, 19 and 20, God hadn't dealt with any other nation like he dealt with Israel. They're in a covenant relationship with God. So here's the question. I'm going to call these verses out. And if you've got your Bible in Amos chapter 2, I'm going to march through a little bit and just scan the verses. What sins had Israel done? They were prosperous. They were wealthy, which wasn't a sin, by the way. That wasn't their problem. But it did blind them to some things. Here are their sins. Number one, they caused the righteous to be sold into slavery. That's Amos chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Father and son fornicate with the same woman. That's chapter 2 and verse 7. Chapter 2 and verse 12, they don't want prophets to speak to them, and that's also true in chapter 5 and verse 10. They spend all of their money on, on their ill-gotten game where they hustled people and mistreated people. They spend all of that on luxurious living. Chapter 3 and verse 15, they have two houses, a winter house and a summer house. Chapter 6 and verse 4 says the same thing. The women love luxurious living and it drives their husbands to crooked business practices. And so he rebukes them for that in chapter four, starting in verse one. He, they oppress the poor. Chapter five and verse seven. Chapter five and verse eleven. 
Chapter five and verse 12, they take business bribes. Amos says, I know your many transgressions and how great are your sins. You afflict the righteous who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. And then they try to use religion as a shield for their sins. In chapter five, verse 21 through 27, they use dishonest scales in their business. Chapter eight, verses five through six. So here's their sin. They've got a long list of problems and they're just a corrupt group of people. What does God say about all of this? This is God's response. Notice chapter four and verse 12. And I'll say something about a song we sing. Who wants to read for me, please? Amos chapter four and verse 12. Somebody nice and loud. This is right in the heart of this whole thing about their sin. Amos chapter four and verse 12. Yeah, if you were to take that song, but we're not going to do it. But song 538, you know that song. Oh, prepare to meet your what? And we normally sing it as a what song? Invitation, meaning come get ready to meet God. That's not what Amos means, though. Amos doesn't mean, well, you've sinned and you should probably get ready and fix things. He's saying, no, you've sinned. You didn't do what's right. And God's coming and there's nothing you can do about it. This is not prepare to meet your God. Like, well, if you get your affairs in order, that time's passed for Israel at this point. Prepare to meet your God. God's coming in judgment. He's not turning back. He also tells them to seek good and not evil. Look at Amos chapter five, verse 14 and 15. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. He tells them God will show them grace at the end of verse 15 if they straighten out. He also tells them, I'm not accepting your worship until you change. Look at Amos chapter 5 and notice verse 21 down through 23. I hate and I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen. God says he's not accepting their worship. Their mindset was this. We're doing all of this crooked stuff, but I can tell you this. We've got all the worship right. In fact, we're doing it exactly like God says, and we haven't deviated at all. And God says, essentially, stop worshiping me because I won't accept it until they do what? What do you think God wants them to do? I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 24. Do what? Yeah, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. So God wants them essentially to repent that part there. Let justice roll down like waters. It's in Martin Luther King's famous I have a dream speech. He slips it in. People don't know this is from Amos, but he's basically saying, hey, we've got to fix things. That's what Amos is calling on the people to do. So let me ask you a question. What is righteousness? What would you say that is? If somebody said define righteousness, what would you say? Okay, yes, but here's the problem. Technically, they are being obedient to God because they're offering up worship. Now, righteousness does sometimes mean obedience to God. But what about righteousness in relation to other people? It still is going to be under that umbrella of obedience to God. But how would you define righteousness as it relates to other people? Because they're doing the worship. So if God says, hey, obey me, they would say we did. Leviticus three through five got all the sacrifices, got them all down. What does he mean? Let righteousness Roll down or justice roll down. What does righteousness mean? Practice what you preach and to do right and have fair treatment toward people regardless of their social standing. Treat people right no matter who they are, no matter what they've done. And what about justice? What does justice mean? What if somebody says, I want justice? What does that mean? They want what? Starts with fair, ends with this. What? They want fairness. Justice 
is the actions or are the actions that we take when righteousness is not being practiced. So if righteousness gets out of balance, if we mistreat people based on how they are, rich or poor, whatever they are socially, if we mistreat people, that would be unjust. And justice would be whatever actions we take to straighten things out. God says, until that's flowing throughout the nation, I don't want to do anything with you. There are a lot of people in our country that talk about social justice. Maybe you've heard the term in recent times. And, you know, sometimes Christians bristle about that. They don't like that. It makes them feel uncomfortable. Here's what I'm going to tell you. The Bible talks a lot about it and people might misuse it and corrupt it and twist it. And when they do, that needs to be pointed out. But you can't read Amos and not see what he's talking about. Really, all of the prophets at the heart of the prophetic message is God cares about how you treat the marginalized, the abused, the downtrodden, the neglected. And we should really be at the front lines of making sure that's done. I don't care who says it. I don't care what people try to do to twist it. Justice is a biblical concept as far as God's concerned. And we've got to get this right. It doesn't matter how right the worship is. Amos is a lesson in this. We don't get to overlook people. We don't get to mistreat people and say, well, we're worshiping according to the proper acts and the proper actions. Amos is rebuking a nation of people because they've missed justice. And I've delineated for you from the text all of the different ways that's done. And every one of their sins is about mistreatment of people in a lower status than them. And Amos is saying, you've got to get that right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We can't mistake justice for revenge, but we do have to practice it. We do. And so. Yeah. That's right. There are generally two responses to downtrodden people in the world. One response is to abuse them, to make it harder for them. And I think that's some of what's going on in Amos. Amos 2, 6 and 7, he says, you take a bribe from the needy and you sell them off for a pair of shoes. You want the dust off a poor man's forehead. Sometimes people abuse them. But the second one is that you can ignore them. And God won't let you get away with either one. And so there's this challenge in the book of Amos and everything in Amos needs to be situated in the context of the whole Bible. The whole Christian message is not merely feed the hungry, take care of the poor. We do need to preach the gospel. I understand that. I'm just telling you to do all of that to the neglect of this is to fall short of what God wants us to do, because that's what Amos teaches. And the New Testament verifies this Galatians 6:10. as you therefore have opportunity, do good to who? All men, especially those of the household of faith, but not only those of the household of faith. Some people miss that. Everybody. And Amos is rebuking a group of people for failing to do that. Tom, you had a question? Jesus told a parable about a man who went down from Samaria. You remember, fell among thieves and he was robbed and left half dead. And Jesus says the priest went by. He probably had to go to worship. The Levi went by. He probably didn't want to be contaminated. And the Samaritan took him poured in oil and wine, took him to the end, paid and said, if he owes anything more on my return, I'll repay it. Which one of them was neighbor to him? And Jesus says, the one that showed him what? Mercy, Luke 10, 37. Who's our neighbor? Now, in this context, yes, probably the Israelite kinsmen, but the New Testament says, you've got to broaden this out. Do good to all men, Galatians 6, 10. That's everybody. That's everybody especially those of the household of faith, which Tom would be right. You start with the Christians for sure, but you don't stop with the Christians because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus showed kindness to everybody. And that's God's response to their sin. Anybody else? Any other questions on this or comments? 
I just want us to keep one thing in mind. I just think this is important for us to see. Never let the world's abuse or mistaken appropriation of a term, concept or idea stop us from practicing what the Bible says that we must. Now, they don't get to draw the lines on what this looks like and how many people we should feed and what we should do. I'm not telling you that. But I'm saying I've heard Christians say, well, I'm not about doing that. Well, I'm not into. Well, the Bible's into it. And so we need to be. All right. Quickly through the end of the book and then some theological application. There are five visions. And the interesting thing about these visions in the first two, God says, I'm sending locusts and fire. Amos begs God not to. And God relents. He says that he won't do it. If you look at verse number three of chapter seven, the Lord relented concerning this. And then if you look at chapter seven and verse six, the Lord relented concerning this again. But then when you get to the third, fourth and fifth vision, God says, Judgment's coming, and I'm not changing my mind. Judgment's coming on Israel, the day of the Lord's coming, because they haven't done what they should have done, and as a result, God's going to punish them. The last thing, you probably won't get all the blanks written in. Sorry. Sorry. The last thing in the overall context of the book is there is a word of hope in salvation, and that is, and I think this is what Miss Nita was talking about earlier. Go to Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter nine at the end of the book in verse 11, it says in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. When you're reading in the prophets and you see the phrase in that day, what is it talking about? In what day? Messiah, the Christian age. It's not talking about a 24 hour period. But when you start reading the Old Testament, especially the prophets, and they say, hey, great things are coming in that day at that future time. They're normally talking about the New Testament age. And with Amos, we'll see in a minute. We don't need to guess about it because it's quoted in the New Testament. And the authors tell us there Amos was talking about the New Testament age. And so in that day, as it's revealed in the prophets, is normally talking about a future day. What's going to happen? The house of David's going to be exalted. I know I told you the visions about destruction, but I'm going to exalt you. I'm going to restore and bless. And also God will permanently plant his people in the land. So here are the great things that are coming. All right. What are some of the major themes discussed in Amos? Number one, judgment is coming. God tells his people in Amos four and verse 12, prepare to meet your God. Judgment's coming on them. Every judgment in the Bible, I think Chuck pointed this out, is not about end time final judgment, but there are times of judgment and punishment that come on God's people. Number two, there are hymns throughout Amos that praise God. We'll just bypass that. God will take drastic measures to save us from ourselves. I do want to look at this. Go to Amos chapter four and notice verse six. As God's rebuking them and he's saying he's going to destroy them, he says he did certain things like struck them with different plagues. And then he has this phrase at the end. I did this to you and yet you did not return to me. Look at the end of chapter four and verse eight. Yet you did not return to me. So throughout this, God is saying, I did things. I struck your land with blasts, mildew, pestilence. I did all of this to get your attention. None of it worked. God will take drastic measures to save us from ourselves. But if we ignore continually those warnings and those punishments, nothing's left but condemnation and judgment. And all of those instances, you didn't return to me. The last one, look at chapter four and verse 11. You did not return to me. And then what does verse 12 say? So prepare to meet your God. There's nothing else I can do for you. You won't repent. You won't straighten up. So the only thing that remains is judgment. Worship can't fool God. This is a key part in Amos because worship is supposed to shape us into the people God wants us to be. But just because they were coming and worshiping God like he wanted didn't mean that they were doing what God wanted them to do. They still were falling short and they were thinking, well, as long as we come to our temple and do what we're supposed to do, God's going to be pleased with us. But God says, I'm not at all. God gives us second chances. And then 
never shoot the messenger. They wanted Amos out of town. Amaziah says, go back home to your country town of Tekoa and preach. Amos says, God sent me here, and that's why I'm preaching. And that's the message that the people desperately needed to hear. All right, where is Amos found in the New Testament? This will be... The first time you see it is in Acts chapter 7. Stephen quotes it in his sermon, Acts 7, 14 through 43, where he's talking about the people worshiping the host of heaven in the wilderness. And he quotes Amos 5, 25 through 27. You know what's ironic about Stephen and Amos? What did they do to Stephen for preaching the truth? Stone him to death, right? Played dodgeball with rocks. No dodging for Stephen. He was killed for preaching the truth, right? And they kicked Amos out of town or tried to in Amos chapter 7 for preaching the truth. So it's ironic that he would quote from Amos, but also in Acts 15, which is another ironic place to find the book of Amos quoted. What's going on in Acts 15? Jews and Gentiles wondering, hey, what do we do with people from different cultural backgrounds and how do we treat different people? And James stands up and he says, hey, Amos said one day the house of the Lord is going to be rebuilt. The Tower of David is going to be reestablished. That day is now the Gentiles in and don't make them be circumcised or do anything else. That's the heart of the message of Amos. Accept people and treat them the way God wants to wants you to just because they're image bearers. And when the church was struggling with this in Acts 15, some came in and said, well, maybe we should allow the Gentiles or make them be circumcised. James quotes Amos, a book that at its heart is saying, receive people the way God wants you to. And then there are some other possible allusions that aren't quotes, but they might point to some things in Amos, like judgment begins first at the house of God. First Peter 4:17. Um, Matthew 4:19, Jesus says, I'll make you fishers of men. And Amos mentions that in Amos 4 and verse 2. And then, of course, abhor what is evil and cleave to that which is good comes from Amos 5 and verse 15. So there are some other possible allusions. Here's the last thing in the two minutes is 758. So we've got just enough time to do this. And I won't even I'll just give you these. I won't worry about the screen. Let's just cut the screen off. How does Jesus relate to Amos? Here are a few things to keep in mind. Jesus never quotes directly from Amos, but their lives share many parallels. When Jesus preached, he wasn't professionally trained. And they said, how does this man know these things? Having never been to school. John 7, 15. Jesus, like Amos, was an unprofessional preacher and yet effective and did the things God wanted him to do. He preached in a way that people wanted him out of town and eventually the authorities do put Jesus to death, John 11, 49 through 53. Jesus, like Amos, told people, get ready to meet who? God, which would be, in Jesus' case, he would say, get ready to meet me, John 12 and verse 48. You can't escape this. Jesus rebuked people for going through the motions with their lips, but being far from him in their hearts. So Amos says, worship can't save you if you're not sincere. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it's been said, but what? I say to you, and in every one of those instances, he says, just because you don't do the sinful act, if the sinful deed is in your heart, you're guilty. Just like Amos was driving at the heart of people, Jesus does the same thing. Jesus stressed the proper treatment of people. I don't know how this is going to work out, but I know this on the day of judgment. There are going to be some people surprised because Jesus is going to say, I was hungry and thirsty and naked and you didn't you didn't do it. And they're going to say, we didn't see you. If you would have wore a name tag that said, hi, my name is Jesus, we would have fed you. And Jesus is going to say, what you didn't do to the least of these, my brethren, you didn't do to me. And that's the heart of Amos. Treat people the way God wants you to. And in all of the things God's blessed you with, use it to his glory and goodness, but never as a cloak for unrighteousness. Thanks for a good Bible class tonight.